ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's a smartphone app for almost everything now, but a new partnership means that you can use your phone to make sure Indigenous people benefit when you buy bush foods and products. Ellie Bradfield reports. Just like Indigenous art, for a long time, those benefiting from the sale of bush foods were not always Indigenous people. But as more Australians want to buy native foods, plants and products, where they come from, and being able to verify their authenticity is becoming more important. And Indigenous communities are playing a leading role in developing technology that will allow consumers to be more confident in their purchases. You know, am I supporting the Indigenous community when I buy this jam? Where are these products coming from? That's Jagara, Yugambe and Gittable Woman and Indigenous Enterprise Group Chair Madonna Thompson. She explains the concept. One of the main concerns that were raised by sort of the elders from communities that currently provide raw products such as kakadu plum around the traceability, authenticity particularly, and cultural authority. And the concern that as more and more people become growers and cultivate native plants um, commercially over time within Australia, that what would get lost is this body of information around where did these plants come from because of their their significance to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the first cultivators and horticulturalists and harvesters of these, these plants. So we thought, well, we need to be ahead of the game. So we need to, as uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait people in this space, rather than wait to be invited, we need to be part of leading a change in this particular industry. Director of the University of Queensland's Australian Research Council Training Centre for Uniquely Australian Foods, Professor Yasmina Sultan-Bawa says the Tucker app, which uses blockchain technology, means the history of a product from harvesting all the way to the end user can easily be traced. There can be technologies at different points, from the point of harvest to consumption, you may use uh, rapid technologies like sensor technologies to understand the quality of the product. And you will also use this Bush Tucker app to record the information, the information of when it was harvested, how it was harvested, how it's going to be stored, how it is going to be distributed. And that would be available as a transparent uh, information for people to access that information and understand from where it is coming. So it really gives... Uh, it empowers the communities to actually be in the front seat when they buy, I mean, when they negotiate prices. And it also gives the comfort to buyers because you have that transparent evidence to show the authenticity and the provenance of the product. The market is growing. So there is a huge demand for these products now in comparison to maybe about a decade ago. And the demand is coming from the wider community because the indigenous communities have already all always known how valuable these products are. So they know the nutritional value, they know the therapeutic value of these products. But because of the market demand and the increase needed in the supply to meet that demand, there is a need for us to prove premium quality of these products. She's hoping this becomes a model that other Indigenous countries can use, benefiting both Indigenous communities and consumers. And the blockchain really allows 
that kind of transparency and trust to be formed. Uh, I can imagine the retailers like Woolworths and Coles uh, being very comfortable in buying products from such a native food ledger because uh, they, they, there is the, the evidence is there to say that it is coming from communities and then the premium quality is retained because there is um, a constant, it's almost like a self-auditing system, you know, because you have to record all that information and you have to ensure that the whole value chain, yeah, the temperature is maintained and, you know, the storage and things like that. So I... I believe that the market will grow. And Madonna Thompson says it's not just limited to bush foods, but all Australian botanical and food species. A range from being wild harvesters, who are wild harvesting a kakadu plum that grows naturally in your community, through to someone who cultivates, so they're growing salt bush, or they're growing waffle, to those who are manufacturing it, so they're changing it from that, nat- that raw plant to say powder form, and that all the way through to you know your your market or shelf ready products such as um your jams or your relishes, and we're even looking at uh, our business that will be doing skincare range as well. So we can just show show how we can track from where the community wild harvests it all the way through to a product on the shelf. The bush foods industry has the potential to become big, but it's the application of Australian botanical and food species across numerous industries. So food is only one aspect. Australian botanical species are being applied across uh, the seafood industry around preservation. It's being applied to the uh, the pharmaceutical and nutrient industries, uh, the health foods industry. With the cooperative that um, I sit on, the Bush Blackland Botanicals Indigenous Enterprise Group, uh, Enterprise Cooperative Limited, we have um, Indigenous growers and harvesters who uh, were working collaboratively with universities in research around the application of Australian botanical species even in pesticides. She says traceability is extra important because of the place-based nature of bush foods and plants. A lot of species uh, uniquely come from particular areas of Australia and some of those species are found nowhere else on the continent but certain places such as Kakadu Plum which is Northern Territory or Northwestern Australia. And so these species play a very important part culturally to those communities. They have totems attached to these. They have relationship of skin law attached to these species. They have been a part of the practice of maintaining those spaces for more than 10 generations, which has, and science is, is starting to recognise that these practices have also enabled um, the resilience and the response of those plant species then equates to something like the highest concentration of vitamin C known because of the way they have been cared for by those communities. So it's not just a commercial opportunity for them. It, it is couched in a cultural obligation. And it's really important in Australia as, this, as the interest in this becomes greater that we preserve that and also enable and the back end those communities and Indigenous businesses to be able to put some cultural authority and information, which also means that anybody that is putting additional information in in regarding that product in that particular community area or location, that they have their own cultural authority that says, hey, you know, these these elders within that business or community 
need to be able to tick the box on that. Yasmina Sultan-Bawa says that storytelling is very important. With all these technology sort of opportunities, they can, you know, upload images. Like if they're doing, you know, if they want people to know about how they look after country and the cultural, you know, knowledge they have, even the burning practices, they can just upload it while they're, you know, to the blockchain so that people who are not aware of those can really understand what those practices are. And I think that's where the storytelling becomes very important for each community. They'll have a different narrative. And I think the price would, or people would be willing to pay that price also because of that kind of rich cultural background that the product has. University of Queensland professor Yasmina Sultan-Bawa ending that story from Ellie Bradfield. Of the 35,000 native plants in Australia, only one has been commercialised for food. And I don't know if you know which one it is, but it's Queensland's macadamias. But there's a push to add more to that list and putting more native foods on your plate could also help develop drought-resilient crops. Annie Brown went to look at plots of warrigal greens, kangaroo grass and myrnong. There's another good one there. Gabe Baker is an Indigenous farmer in the hills of the Kiwa Valley in northeast Victoria. This morning, she's digging up some myrnong, an Australian native yam. It's been grown here in Australia by Indigenous people for a very, very long time. It used to cover vast areas of Victoria and New South Wales and further on. It was a staple food crop. was nearly lost over the time with um, sheep and cattle and loss of habitat. It is a vegetable, so it does need tending. To me, it tastes like a sweet parsnip. Some people say they can taste coconut. I can't. And you roast it, so you, like you caramelise your onion, you caramelise your myrnong. And it's very, very tasty. So this is taken, how long has this crop here taken to grow? Okay, so these are seedlings that were brought last year, in winter time last year. They would probably nearly be two years old by now, basically. And these little ones over here are ones that have struck from these seeds, so they're a lot more naturalised, and they struck autumn, late, late summer autumn. In this area, they're, they're behaving differently than what's recommended and behaving differently than even in Wodonga, where I grew them firstly, and out at um, NEC Greengate Farm where I did trials out there in 2018 in the middle of the the drought. So they do have an ability to adapt to different areas. I guess you've been growing menong for a while then now. What started all this and why did you want to bring it back? Um, When I was doing my Diploma of Organic Farming at Greengate, our head lecturer, uh, Rob Fenton, gave me the opportunity to run the menong project there. And I was always interested in bush foods. I wanted to do herbal teas. But the opportunity was given and I took it up. And we've just gone ahead in leaps and bounds since then. It's interesting being, I guess, at a trial site for crops that are thousands of years old. You know, they're not new crops, are they? 
No, they're not new crops, but the plants themselves, the cropping methods have been lost. The knowledge has been lost. Well, lost to me anyway and my family and so forth. So it's now um, relearning, re-establishing, re-identifying. I have no idea where the lanceolata will cross with walterii or scapulata. I have no idea. We, We... We'll just have to, it's a trial and we'll grow it and see what's going to work, what's going to be the most resilient. Why do we need to bring back Indigenous cropping? The soils are not European soils. They're Australian soils. And they're trying, people are growing, and they're not trying, but they are growing European crops. But our environment is changing. Our weather is changing Everything is changing. These plants, our Australian native plants, have lived in Australia for thousands upon thousands of years. They've lived through drought. They've lived through ice ages. They've lived through many changes. They are adapted to Australia. It is only a commercial aptitude that we all buy wheat bread, not kangaroo grass breed. It's now time to relearn these things and their values and their values as food crops are quite often a lot higher than European commercial crops and reintroduce them and and bring it from bring bring it from a, a, a garden novelty to a bespoke industry to then a commercial industry. That's the process, in my mind, that we need to go through to reintroduce plants, native vegetables, that are totally adapt to Australian conditions.